um, for the word confidence. Uh, you could probably imagine some of the things that come up. Lots of what came up was how to build self-confidence. Uh, lots of um, five steps to confidence, that sort of thing. Uh, saying to yourself, for example, I can, rather than I can't. Some rather clever pictures of the word I can't with someone scrubbing out the apostrophe T at the end to leave I can affirming yourself in what you are good at even I read of adopting a power stance in the office to tell yourself I can do this now I think there's probably a place for some of that some of us need encouragement as to what we can do and so on that's fine what struck me in all of it was how it was encouraging you to try and convince yourself of something about yourself, saying, I can, I'm able, I've got it in me. And inevitably, in that view, your confidence comes from increasing your view of yourself. Because it all relies on you. You're the one doing it. You must be able. It is self-confidence. Uh, the whole reason I was looking at that and thinking about that was because of what we're seeing in Joshua and indeed in this passage this morning. The book of Joshua has actually inc included lots of calls effectively to confidence. Uh, be strong and very courageous. Kind of you can do it type calls. It's had quite a lot of that on the way through. But it is very unlike self-confidence. What we've seen in Joshua and what we're seeing in some of these chapters is a kind of God-confidence. Where it all turns on what God has said. What God has promised. Where, where because he's spoken, that shapes my view of life and my confidence in living life. Where I'm going and my certainty in getting there. We'll come back to that. Uh, at this point in the book of Joshua, we are looking at the different tribes inherit their portion of the promised land. If you're unfamiliar with the story of the Bible, we have God promising to Abraham a long time ago that his descendants will inherit a land. Those descendants become 12 tribes from 12 sons. Uh, they've been rescued from Egypt. They've been led through the wilderness. They've got to the promised land. They have entered it in the first half of the book. Now it's being divided up amongst those 12 tribes. And in looking at it, we have seen that the land pictures our inheritance if we are those who trust in Christ. It, it pictures the new creation that God is promising. See, God's plan for this world, his whole plan, his destination, end point is a new heavens and a new earth where his people live with him in a perfected world. 
And God's plans with Israel in the Old Testament and that promised land is like a little picture of that. That gives us some kind of understanding, some kind of pattern of what he will then do with the whole world. That's why this is relevant to us. And in this section, we're seeing about people inherit that land. God's promised it to them. It's his gift to them, but they are called to trust God and receive it and take it. And the whole section began really back in chapter 14 with a guy called Caleb who set an example. He was presented as a model. Someone who said, God's promised, give it to me. He said, you can have it, I'll take it. And he was presented as a model for those to follow. And these sections today, we've got more distribution of the land, two different tribes, and today it's to the tribe of Joseph. But along the way, as we saw last week, along the way we're given little stories of people and about how they go about inheriting the land, their attitude to God and his promises. Are people who are like Caleb, and trust God and are an ex- encouragement and example to us, or not so much. So, chapter 16 begins the land allotted to Joseph. It began at the Jordan, east of the springs of Jericho, and it went up from there through the desert, and so on. And it sums up in verse 4, So Manasseh and Ephraim, the descendants of Joseph, received their inheritance. Bit confusing, Joseph is the main guy, two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and they get divided into sort of two tribes of their own. They're often sometimes referred to as the tribe of Joseph, sometimes referred to as tribes themselves. So they receive the inheritance. But because they are the two separate guys, we then get chapter 16, verse 5 onwards, the territory for Ephraim for one of them, and then the territory for Manasseh, in chapter 17. And let me show you a map because it's helpful to see things. So last week we saw the allotment to Judah at the bottom in green. And what we have now is Ephraim in purple and then Manasseh, actually called West Manasseh. It's even more confusing because they split in half and half of them are across the Jordan in East Manasseh up in the northeast. And so we're looking today at Ephraim in the purple and West Manasseh above them. Those are the areas of land described in uh, this section. What we're going to do, though, is we're going to focus on the particular examples that are given of people's attitude in taking the land. So come with me to the opening of chapter 17, The descendants of Manasseh, Uh, verse 2, the land was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh, the clans of Abiezer, Helek, Asriel, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemida. These are the other male descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, by their clans. And they are mentioned, and it's specifically mentioned that they are the male descendants all to set up the bit we read in verse 3. 
Now, Zelophehad, the son of Hepher, he was one of those five guys. The son of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters, whose names were Marla, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terzah. And this is picking up on a story we can actually read earlier in the Bible. It's in the book of Numbers. And we were told there, this guy, Zelophehad, he had these five daughters, no sons. And at the time, the inheritance in the family usually happened through the male line. So what's going to happen to inheritance from Zelophehad? No sons to inherit. And the daughters, these five ladies back then, went to Moses, who was the leader at the time, and they said, what about our inheritance? What's going to happen to us? Our line shouldn't die out. We shouldn't not have a bit of the land. And so Moses had gone and asked God, and God had given his answer and saying that they're absolutely right. They must have an inheritance, give an inheritance to them. And they even developed some kind of law as to what should happen when there were no sons to inherit things. And so that's what they say in verse 4. They went to Eliezer the priest son of, and Joshua son of Nun and the leaders, and they said, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our relatives. And so Joshua gave them an inheritance along with the brothers of their father according to the Lord's command. And we're then told that Manasseh's share consists of ten tracts of land, verse 5, because you get the five daughters along with five sons. So why are we told about the daughters of Zelophehad? What example do they set for us? Let's get you thinking, shall we? It's not a rhetorical question. With your neighbor for a moment, what example do they set? What, 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 what is there here that we're supposed to be learning from them? With your neighbor, you've just got a minute. Go for it. Okay, let's draw back together. 
want to get you guys thinking before I tell you things. Uh, let's just hear a, hear a few quick thoughts. Any ideas? What example do they set for us? Yeah, Karis? So they, okay, so Karis is saying if perhaps Joshua should have actually taken this into account already, but hasn't, and so they come up and say, hey, what, you know, what about what was said? Now, we don't know if Joshua's being remiss at all, doesn't mention that he is, but certainly they're showing, as you put at the end, a confidence in God's promise to say, he's promised it to us, so we're going to claim it. Brilliant. David, were you about to say something? I saw your mouth start to open. That was, that was the start of what I was thinking anyway. Okay, fine. What Karis was thinking. Other thoughts? Go on, Rob. Uh, well, no, it's just a variation on that um, comment. But I think the fact that they put front and centre, this is God's command, not simply like in generic, it was agreed, they're, they're, they're putting the weight on why it's fulfilled. Yeah. So we're also putting the weight on its God's command, not just it was like we came, we came to some arrangement, didn't we? God said, God promised we should have this stuff. So again, we're staking our claim on the basis of what he said. Ruth? So that God, that the, the whole question they raised back then showed God's fairness, his desire they should inherit. Well, if God wants us to do that again, well, we should get it then. So I think, I think what they show us, first heading, confidence in God's promise. First of all, they know the importance of this inheritance. They're concerned about it. That's why they asked about it in the first place. We don't want to miss out. Now the time has come. Now they lay claim to it. So they are kind of shaped by God's promise. It's important to them. They're looking forward to it and they are confident of getting it. They knew what God had said. They knew they would do it. They believed they'd have it. They come and plead that promise to him they're kind of doing a bit of a Caleb Caleb said I know God's promised me if you remember back in chapter 14 remember what he said so give me this land same desire to inherit from God confidence in God you see th th think about how we, we feel if someone, if someone promises you something they promise you a gift I promise I'll buy you that. I promise I'll take you out for that drink. I promise I'll come and help you with that thing in your garden. Whatever. They make a promise to you. 
right? And then time goes on. And then how do we feel about raising that promise with them? A little bit awkward. I know, I know they said, but should I raise it? You know, Karis and I would have this conversation. Sometimes. Someone, someone said they, I, I could borrow their car. I'm not sure you should ask. <laughs> now, why is that? It's uncertainty over that person's kind of commitment to the promise. If I knew they absolutely meant it and wanted me to have it, I would feel bolder in saying, you know, you mentioned that promise. Come on then, give it to me. That's what they're doing. And what it reveals is a confidence in God. He wants us to have this. He meant it. And so I'm going to respond by laying claim to it. And I think they are recorded for us here as an example to follow in that. For those of us who are believers, we have God's promises to us in Jesus. And he means them and he wants us to respond with that kind of attitude of laying claim to them. Taking him at his word. Now we're going to reflect more on that in a moment. Let's see the contrast in the passage first. After this we get the borders for Manasseh described in verse 7 onwards. And then we come to another group in verse 14. The people of Joseph said to Joshua... Why have you allotted us only one portion of land and one share for inheritance? We are a numerous people and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. So this is the whole tribe speaking now. The people of Joseph, that's both tribes, uh, both bits, Manasseh and Ephraim. And they seem to be saying, you've not given us enough land, Joshua. We're really big. We need some more space. Now, If that's the issue, they should really take it up with God, because actually it's God that's allocated the land, and they're basically saying they're not happy with what God's given them. But as it goes on, it seems that the issue is actually slightly different, because Joshua replies, verse 15, if you're so numerous, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest and clear land for yourselves, in the land of the Perizzites and Rephites. Now, it's actually slightly unclear where this land is and whether it's part of their land allotted to them and he's basically saying clear it make it inhabitable or if it's a bit on the border go and get a little bit more for yourselves but basically he's saying it's there for you you can do it and the people of Joseph reply verse 16 the hill country is not enough for us and all the Canaanites who live in the plain have chariots fitted with iron both those in Bethshan and its settlements and those in the valley of Jezreel. And that section is now talking about their allotted land. They're saying, they're like going, and going okay, could we have some more, please? And, and, and Joshua says, well, you know, clear the, clear the hill country then. And they kind of go, well, that's not really enough. And we, we can't even live in the plains because of these Canaanites and their chariots. 
And so Joshua comes back at them in verse 17. Uh, you are numerous and very powerful. You will ha not have not only one portion of land allotted to you, but the forested hill country as well. Clear it and its farthest limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have chariots fitted with iron and though they are strong, you can drive them out. So here's the question again. What example do they set us? Why is their story included? With your neighbour for a moment and we'll feed back. Go for it. Okay, let's draw back together again. What are you thinking? What example are they setting? Thoughts? Yeah, John. Are we supposed to think badly of their doubt, or do they just need... Is that, is that okay, and they just need some encouragement from Joshua? Good question. Let's come back to that. Other thoughts? Yeah, Jen? So are they given more land, or are they being told to make the best of what they've got, and they're chickening out... It's a good question, and to be honest, there is a little bit of debate, because earlier on when it says, you know, go up and clear the forest, it seems like that might be within their boundaries, but then in verse 17, he says, you will have not only one portion of land allotted. So it does sound like he's, there's some extra, but they still seem to be effectively saying, could we have some extra, please? Well, okay, take that. Oh, no, but that won't be enough. <laughs> 
Well, why not? Well, we can't even clear the plain, which is within their boundaries. They are supposed to be taking it. Any other thoughts? Yeah. And they're complaining. Yeah. It's like we'd like some more and we don't like what we've got. Um, and can you sort it for us rather than we have a big God and there's a lot of us that's fearful. Yeah. So actually that they are numerous, kind of blessed, and then rather than going, Hey, we're big and we're blessed, we've got a big God and we can do this, they go, they complain and can you can you please sort it out for us, Joshua? I think it's I think there's a number of things, a number of dynamics going on there, but I'd, if I was to sum it up and compared, I think, to Zelophed's daughter's second heading, uncertainty over God's promise. It starts with the complaint about land, but I think it kind of reveals quite quickly the issue is more we don't think we can. They've got iron plated chariots. We can't defeat them. It's like give us somewhere else because give us somewhere easier. But God has addressed this sort of issue many times. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, he had said, you're going to go to war and you're going to see people more numerous than you. You're going to see horses and chariots. And when you do, don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is with you. So God's addressed the issue. I know they'll look bigger and more powerful. But don't be afraid. I'm with you. You can do it with me. And of course, that's exactly what we have been seeing throughout the book of Joshua so far. And it's what we saw with Caleb. Although the Anakites are there, the really big guys who are really strong. The Lord helping me, I can do it. You see... It's never looked like they could take the land themselves. That's never looked likely. But God had always called them to be confident in him, trusting in him. And so Joshua says here, verse 18, end of verse 18, though the Canaanites have chariots fitted with iron, and though they are strong, you can And that's not a, you can do it, you've got it in you pep talk. That's a, God's promised. And so you can. And to come back to John's question, it's kind of left hanging. I mean, it could be, okay, they're they're doubtful, they're unsure, they hear Joshua say this and they go, okay, we can, let's do it. But we're not told. It's left hanging. It's certainly not left as a good example, I don't think. I think it's there as a warning. Maybe they heard this and stepped up. Great. We don't know. They're certainly not doing a Caleb. Look, what we've got is encouragement and warning here about confidence in God's promises. And it's not a confidence in self, it's a confidence in God. 
And that is a, it, it, it's a dynamic here in taking the land. It is a normal dynamic of the Christian life. But it is a very different sort of confidence, the sort of confidence our culture will talk about. It's a confidence that actually goes hand in hand with dependence. You see, we usually think confidence and dependence are, are kind, of, kind of opposites because dependence means I can't do it, I'm weak. A kind of biblical God confidence is exactly those two things. I know I can't, I know I am weak, but I know he has promised. And so we can in dependence on him. Um, I once fitted uh, a new kitchen uh, and I felt I had the ability to do a whole variety of things in that. But some people asked, oh, what are you doing about the, the work surfaces? Because cutting work surfaces properly to fit together and things in the you know, professional way, that's quite tricky. And I was like, I know, I know, it's, it's, I've got no idea. I mean, it's awful. I don't know how I'd do it. But are you doing it? Are you getting someone else in? No, no, I'm doing it. I'm doing it, I said. Well, how are you doing it? I know a man called Paul Blake, I said. <laughs> He's sitting over there. Paul was the expert. Actually, Paul got me doing lots of the cutting with a router and things. And I did it, in a sense, confident, because he was there confident of him it's not a perfect illustration Paul you're not God <laughs> but that's the kind of dynamic of the Christian life ongoing awareness of our weakness and dependence and yet confidence now we could I just want to decide where to go with this we could in a sense just dip into that more and more just that dynamic and, and you may want to think about that amongst yourselves. Let's be a little more specific, though, in applying it. Here, the promise is specifically about their inheritance, receiving their place in God's kingdom. And so how is our confidence about receiving our inheritance in Christ? Now, this is a thing that the book of Hebrews in the New Testament addresses, and it addresses it specifically using the illustration of entering the land, saying you need to trust God and be confident in him and his promises. And there are some key verses I just wanted to show you uh, to do with that. They're going to come up um, on the screen. He says, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. And then a couple of verses later, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. You see the alternatives being presented there 
you could you could throw away your confidence in God's promise he's promised it but you kind of go no I'm not going to rely on that and the alternative is to endure to press on knowing that promise and receive the end gift or the alternative in the second verse shrinking back oh we can't do it we can't do it versus having faith trusting what God has said and in the book of Hebrews these verses are what lead straight into uh, uh, chapter 11 which has this whole list of people who lived by faith confident of God's promise and we're told that they um they suffered in different ways because they were confident of God's promise. We're told they pressed on even when they didn't have the thing yet because they knew it was lying in the future. We're told they stood out from the world around them. They were prepared to be different and even suffer disgrace. Because they were confident of what God had promised, they wanted to stick with him. One phrase that is used is they... They were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. They knew God's promise lay in the future. They wanted that inheritance. So they didn't throw away their confidence. They pressed on. They didn't shrink back. They had faith. God's promises to them were both bigger than anything else in life, in that they, were, they dominated what their focus was, what they were going for. And God's promises were stronger than anything else in life. That's what I'm going to rely on. That's what I'm going to trust myself to. That's what I'm going to be confident in. As I was reflecting on that, I was thinking about um, how this plays out in different places. In other places in the world... This is why believers in the Lord Jesus are prepared to accept fines and imprisonment and even death because they say, I'm confident of what God has promised. And that's bigger and stronger than whatever I might face now. For us... That confidence isn't shown in, it's not such black and white ways. That confidence, I take it, will be shown in multiple, multiple smaller ways. Uh, how we spend our money. What we give our money to. Because we have confidence that Jesus talks about treasure in heaven. And that's bigger and stronger than what I can get now. How we spend our time and our energy because we believe Jesus is building his church and the bride of Christ is being perfected. How we speak about Jesus to others and hold on to God's truth even in the face of a culture that would despise us for it or pressure us over it because we believe Jesus is Lord and one day every knee will bow to him. 
how we long to honor Jesus in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, because we're looking forward to the day when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter your inheritance, receive your reward, because that's bigger and stronger than anything we face now. We just have a moment for us to reflect one last time together. Uh, uh, Something that struck you from that? Something you want to take away from that? Or maybe, how will that confidence show itself? How will we look different? I've mentioned a few ideas. There are going to be more. With your neighbor for a moment, what struck you? How might that confidence show itself? We'll feed back in a second. Okay, we've just got a couple of minutes for um, some contributions or, or questions, if you have them. Um, we're going to use a microphone, so raise a hand, and um, thoughts, things to enrich our thinking or questions to ask. <sighs> Come on, guys. Uh, we've, got, we've got a couple now. Uh, Ruth, first of all. Um, so when we reflect on the promises that we can that we have from God I, um, that, that prompts us to, to worship him 
and in worshipping God, um, we draw closer. And then the Holy Spirit comes and, and renews our, our strength. It renews um, yeah, our hope. And, and then it becomes quite a natural thing that we then want to, it, not, that, not that we're obviously saved by works, but we, we then want to step up and we want to relate more mm. to people and help yeah. more and, and be more generous or yeah. whatever it looks like. Yeah. So there's a kind of, an, almost like an imperative to remember his promises because yeah. yeah. it very helpfully leads us closer to him. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. And I think there's a, there's a, what's happening in there, I think, is we remind ourselves, but there's also a, a you said it kind of leads us to sort of worship him. You, know, you see his promises, you thank him, you praise him. There's a kind of embracing of his promise that I respond in worship for it, and so on, it becomes, it's almost like it then becomes bigger to me, <laughs> bigger and stronger. So that's one of the things we want to do together as we gather together, isn't it? Remind ourselves what God has said to us and embrace it together. Tom? So Jesus has promised to save us from our sin, mm. and so um, we, we must have faith that, he, that he's promised to do that. Yeah. And um, we mustn't doubt that, and um, we mustn't try and kind of um, lose hope or look for help elsewhere. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I agree completely. Uh, 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 Me, yes, yeah. David, you can say something. <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I was flipping back through the bits we skipped. And one of the things it said in there that um, when Manasseh and Ephraim went into the land, they didn't fully push yes. the Canaanites out. Yeah. And then later they're complaining that they're still there. And it just made me think that sometimes while we don't have such quite bounded promises, maybe in terms of what we're thinking of, you know, you will go in, you'll kick everyone out, you'll take the land. Um, if you don't achieve the totality of God's promise, you don't get the full blessing of it. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And we're going to come back to those we've, those comments about they didn't drive people out. We're going to look at that more next week. So, John. We were saying about uh, things being bigger and stronger, but also better yeah. uh, as well. And Karis was saying about how Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, was willing to endure. Yeah. And that actually it's not just he's bigger and stronger so we can grin and bear it or whatever, but actually we can be joyful. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Bigger, bigger better, better. Bigger, stronger, and better. So we embrace them. Um, Ruth, uh, Ruth's going to hand up there, and then we'll come over to Jen, and then we're going to have to finish, I think. Hi, Graeme. I have a question. Um, obviously, for the people entering the promised land, God's promise to give them the land was much more tangible. Mm. There's the field. Take the field. Um, I guess for us now, a lot of God's promises are much more in the future and less tangible. Have you got any advice or... Yeah, ways in which we can make God's promises for the future feel more real day to day. Like, how are, these, mm -hmm. how are God's promises going to make me feel different or behave differently at work tomorrow? Yeah, yeah thank you. What a great question. Just to say, as I said, that, that, that whole dynamic of he's promised and we live in dependence on the promise. I mean, that's true of promises that are for now, like he'll strengthen us, that he's with us, that we can fight sin, that he'll... Uh, he'll empower us in speaking the gospel. So there are promises for now. The reason I focus as I have is because this is for looking at their inheritance, which for us lies in the future. Um, 
Well, I hope one thing that's happening as we look at this, I mean, John, uh, uh, Rob mentioned this last week, the, while the boundary lists feel very remote to us because we don't know where, you know, Bethel crossing over to the territory of the Archites, you kind of go, huh. But it's a concrete place. Um, and we have that, con there are concrete promises of not just some ethereal floaty future, but of a real new heavens, new earth. I mean, we're not told, you know, the Coopers will live in this territory and own this land. But, but it's almost like that. And so we partly need to remember it is, it is a concrete place. And that's one reason why it's pictured like this, a land flowing with milk and honey as in a, a beautiful, precious place that's better than anywhere else. And I think some kind of reminder and reflection on those promises and appropriate use of imagination. You know, anything that's good and beautiful and precious in this world will be there and be better. Anything that is sad and ugly and painful in this world will be gone. Let's try and think through what that looks like. Uh, last one, Jen. You were talking about um, the category of spiritual blessing that we're promised right now. Mm. And um, uh, the way that that can be the, the hill country and the chariots, they loom large for these tribes. And the things that can loom large for us are the things that um, God does call us to to destroy. We're called to die to self. And so there is something quite concrete about that in a way that's like, actually, there's loads of comforts that we would like to just have without any cost. Yeah. But God calls us to a cost and then there's blessing, like they, like someone was saying about for the joy set before him. Yeah. Um, and just that that actually is, um, maybe we're just, we live on a plane that is quite distracted from the spiritual blessing side of yeah. existing in this world. Yeah. Actually, that that's so real. Yeah. And yet we can just go for the comfort. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. One of the bands could come up. And we are going to encourage each other to live this out more and more uh, by our next song. It's based on that picture in Hebrews of those who lived by faith. Let's stand and let's sing together.